So my seminar today is loosely based on the chapter in the book that, uh, that Alex has edited. Um, there are four parts to what I'm going to say today. First of all, what I'm going to do is introduce the subject of the developmental origins of health and disease, which I will refer to with the acronym DOHAD throughout today. And I'll be talking about how this uh, area of epidemiology and biomedical research may be interpreted within a framework of evolutionary theory. Following that, I'm going to be taking a little bit of a left-field approach from what um, some people might have been expecting. I'm going to go a little bit into a critical medical anthropological perspective on, on this field and how this science is processed socially and what it means. But then I'm going to come back to the science itself and taking a critical perspective on the interpretation of that uh, with reference to theory and data. Finally, I'm going to conclude with an alternative <coughs> evolutionary perspective um, on what might be going on and state what I think we might or may not be able to take from this to policy and practice. So, um, DOHAD, the Developmental Origins of Health and Disease, is a research programme that refers to the hypothesis that one's experience during very early life, and particularly life in the womb and in the earliest days of infancy, the months and years of infancy, uh, can have long-term consequences for health. The first thousand days, referring to the prenatal life and the first two years, and the first two years is uh, postnatal life is a term that's been used in UK public health circles. But today I'm going to be talking about pregnancy specifically. The map on the left here uh, shows infant mortality rates in England and Wales in the earliest decade of the 20th century, with the darker areas being those with the highest, highest rates. And the map on the right shows male coronary or ischemic heart disease mortality approximately 60 to 70 years, years later. <coughs> and it was geographical patterns like these that led David Barker and colleagues uh, to investigate an intriguing possibility, which was that the very same environmental conditions which caused this variation in infant mortality <coughs> rates during the early part of the 20th century were... Um, were the same conditions which caused those that survived to, many decades later as adults, suffer higher rates of, of heart disease. So Barker and colleagues might thought that the environment someone experiences during prenatal or early postnatal life could affect their, their lifelong health. So this is their hypothesis, and one can make and test predictions from a hypothesis like that. And in this case, we can note that a major predictor of infant mortality is a baby's birth weight and make the reasonable assumption that the reason why infant mortality and adult disease are connected geographically um, is that uh, they are commonly caused by a fetal environment that, that is associated with restrict, restricted growth. So what you can do then is you can then try and find um, adults for whom birth weight data are available and test the prediction that those low birth weights, the lower, lower the birth weight, the higher the risk of having, of having a disease like heart disease. Because growth restriction is, is, is causing both low birth weight and increased risk of, of, of disease. So this is the approach that's been used in dozens of subsequent studies and meta-analyses and systematic reviews, which are studies which try to take a look at the whole literature on a particular question and say, overall, what do we know about, about this, this question? So meta-analyses and systematic reviews confirm that in a wide range of populations, there is indeed 
a negative relationship between birth weight and both coronary heart, coronary heart disease and between birth weight and type 2 diabetes. So these birth weight studies provide one strand of evidence in support of the hypothesis that growth in the womb affects long-term health. But even controlling, um, sorry, um, but even controlling for lots of other factors, um, there's also still the possibility of, um, of other uh, confounding factors uh, giving rise to these relationships. So what we really need is some sort of experimental work where there's an intervention, experimental intervention, and then the consequences of that are, are compared to control groups. And so two other strands of evidence are used in support of DOHAD in, in addition to the birth weight um, studies. And these are animal model studies and famine studies. So animal model studies typically involve giving a protein-restricted diet to pregnant uh, rats or mice, usually rats, and then monitoring those the offspring from that pregnancy relative <coughs> to, to controls, the offspring of control females. Famine studies have used, and particularly there's the, the Dutch hunger winter of 1944 to 1945, uh, famine studies have used these humanitarian disasters as an opportunity to study the long-term consequences for those who were in the womb uh, during, during those periods. So during the, the hunger winter of 1944-45, there was a period of acute food shortage during large parts of, ne of the Netherlands. And the results of these studies um, are generally consistent with the DOHAD hypothesis. Um, but I will be returning <coughs> to this in a bit more of a critical eye towards the end. So I now want to talk about how these findings have been interpreted within the theoretical framework of, of Darwinian natural selection. Here we must consider the concept of adaptation. So just to, just to recap so we're on the same page and we're talking the same language, an adaptation is a feature of an organism that allows it to function effectively in a given environment. Species could become adapted over evolutionary time, Homo sapiens, humans, if you compare us to chimpanzees and bonobos, our, our joint closest relatives, um, we are heavily adapted to terrestrial locomotion, for example. We have um, flat feet and an upright posture, whereas um, chimps and bonobos don't have such an upright posture and they have their feet they can, they can grasp, so their feet aren't, aren't adapted to walking, walking on flat surfaces like we are. So that's an example of a feature that you can, adaptation that you can see in the, in, in, the phys, in the physical form of an animal. But also, <coughs> individuals can become adapted over their lifetimes. When athletes compete at high altitudes, they sp first spend some time acclimatising. So they spend some time acclimatising at that altitude um, to prepare their blood to transport oxygen um, around where, if more effectively, at lower, lower air pressure. So it's been suggested that the uh, relationship between poor fetal growth and later disease risk may be explained because the fetus is trying to adapt itself to a particular kind of environment. This is the concept of the predictive adaptive response, or PAR, as I will abbreviate it to. to um, so that's the two acronyms we need to remember to, for, throughout this talk, is DOHAD and, and PAR. DOHAD is the epidemiological biomedical uh, um, the, the, sort of the actual um, relationships that are observed, and PAR is this evolutionary hypothesis to, to explain, explain that. Okay, um, so this has been written out extensively by uh, Peter Gluckman and Mark Hansen and colleagues, and it proposes that conditions experienced during the womb, in, in the womb, during, pre, during prenatal life, 
um, provide information about the outside world which tells the fetus what kind of environment it's going to be born into. And the fetus then makes choices um, about how to develop its biological characteristics based on that information. And these biological characteristics determine that the, 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 the individual's rate of disease risk. So before I go into a bit more detail about this, um, I would just like to say that I'm, making a, I'm using a lot of words which are very teleological and which, are, which you often find in evolutionary uh, accounts of, of understanding human features. So I'm using words like the fetus tries, it makes choices, etc. This is all figurative, okay? so there's no conscious decision-making involved. We're merely considering adaptive decisions made at the physiological or, or developmental level in much the same way as we can talk about an athlete's body you know, m making a decision about red blood, red blood cell production. So it's, it's a, just a figurative way of, of thinking about what's going on. So what does this predictive adaptive response um, have to do between, have to, do to, uh, have to say about the relationship between restricted fetal growth and type 2 diabetes and coronary heart disease risk. Well, these outcomes, these health outcomes, are associated with a number of physiological and anatomical traits which may be functionally associated with metabolism and energy use and storage. So, for example, type 2 diabetes is a disease outcome which the etiology of which appears to be heavy to do with insulin resistance. So when the body's cells are slow at taking up sugar, sugar from the blood. Now the PAR hypothesis argues that insulin resistance is an adaptation that helps the body function well in environments in which food is scarce because it means that energy is used up at a, at a slower rate. So it's argued insulin resistance and other traits um, may bestow certain advantages when the fetus experiences poor in, poor in, in utero growth uh, alters its metabolism because it's ex expecting a particular kind of environment postnatally and then experiences a scarcity of food later in life. It's then adapted to, to those conditions. And the link with disease is that disease only arises when individuals experience something called a mismatch. A mismatch between their early environment and their later environment. So they've made a prediction and that prediction is actually wrong. So they, they experience... They make a prediction about a poor postnatal environment, but actually it turns out they're in a high-energy environment there, so that's a mismatch. And um, so this, they find themselves in an environment in which cheap, high-energy food is abundant, and then insulin resistance um, actually leads to type 2 diabetes in that, in, that con in, that, in that eventuality. Okay, so that concludes the first part of what I want to say. Now, for the third section... Um, I want to consider the implications of Dohad and Parr from something of a critical medical anthropological perspective. I'm not a medical anthropologist, um, but I do think that medical anthropology has something to say about the meanings that these concepts have um, that can be useful to us. And I've, I've come to the conclusion that having a reflective understanding of how we interpret these ideas has a role to play in evaluating our collective knowledge and understanding. But don't worry, I will be coming back to the science after this. So specifically, I'd like to draw upon Foucault's idea that in any particular time and place, there's a, something called a regime of truth that determines what ideas may become more or less acceptable to society, or specifically to those sectors of society 
that can be influential in determining what ideas catch on and become uh, uh, um, normative. So I believe that an argument can be made that some of the aforementioned ideas about Dohad and Par might partly have gained the acceptance that they do because they sit well within a particular set of discourses about what causes ill health and with whom responsibility for that ill health lies. So first I'm going to focus on Dohad. Dohad argues that in particular the first nine months of life are of critical importance in determining later health. This places responsibility for the child's later health in the hands of the mother, whose behaviour in terms of diet and other activity can be readily identified as a major determinant of the environment over that time period. And this is actually despite the fact that we do know that social epidemiology, social epidemiology tells us that mothers, that, that a parent, a mother exists within a complex socio-ecological web which limits her agency in multiple and often profound ways. But this idea of maternal responsibility uh, might catch on, might have caught on because it does have precedence um, in both science and also popular consciousness of the importance of pregnancy conditions. There are some really striking examples so we know how harmful smoking during pregnancy is, and also there's the consequences of abuse of dangerous drugs like alcohol, um, as we can see in the case of fetal alcohol syndrome. So we've got this, there's, there's already, there is a precedent for this, this being important. Perhaps not surprisingly, um, we can see this narrative played out very clearly in the media coverage of Dohad research papers. So sometimes, uh, he had a couple of headlines here from just one particular study that came out last year, that um, was based on work in, in, in Gambia. But sometimes the attitudes of researchers might be or appear to be complicit in this practice in placing responsibility primarily with the mother. So in a quote used by a Daily Mail article on the research looking at how conditions <coughs> at around the time of conception could affect gene expression in offspring, one study author was quoted as saying, <coughs> it's not... It's about not just starting to behave yourself once you know you're pregnant. Behave yourself. So, in a recent paper that's been actually um, quite an inspiration to me uh, on a related topic, it's actually just uh, published this year, it's a 2016 paper, um, Epigenetics in the Neoliberal Regime of Truth, Charles Dupras and Vardit Ravitsky have used the term internalisation to refer to the location of health risks within the individual rather than to external factors that may influence them. And they further use the term isolation to refer to the attribution of disease causation um, to being, being due to disruption of small biological entities rather than interactions at, at the systemic level between individuals and, and, and structures. And they argue that internalisation and isolation are processes that we in our society routinely apply to biomedical knowledge. Um, so I, I propose that we can apply this analysis to the issues of maternal responsibility for offspring development and health. I think we should consider the possibility that the Dohad discourse de-emphasises the role of social structure in influencing health in favour of an emphasis on the, uh, the most overtly simplistic explanation available, which is individual behaviour and specifically the behaviour of the mother-to-be. Here I use the term maternalisation. And I propose that we should, I suggest that we should 
consider that this might occur uh, because it's an explanation that fits within our particular regime of, of truth in our society. In addition, I'd like to extend this to this line of thinking towards the Par hypothesis as well as Dohad. So the Par, the, the, the par hypothesis is, is an evolutionary model which invites the perspective that many of the effects we see of the envir- early environment on later health are not inevitable. They don't just come about because a bad environment has bad consequences for the developing individual. They come about because the developing individual predicts a nutritionally poor environment and adaptively responds to that prediction. It makes a choice, in a way. In a developmental sense, we can predict central roles, so we're talking a bit about biological here, but we can predict that there should be central roles of internal chemical signals within the body um, such as hormones that enable this to occur, and there are implications for this from a, a, bio, a, 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 a biotech or a, 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 a therapeutic perspective. So, if there are hormones involved, we can identify these hormones and we can potentially block that block their action. So, and the possibility of, of therapeutic application of, of knowledge of the mechanisms underlying DOHAD processes is actually explicitly uh, discussed in some papers as something that should motivate future research and, and funding. So the implication at the end of the day here is that you can reduce inequalities in health and disease states by flipping switches at, at a molecular level or with, treatment of, with hormonal treatment. So here I put forward the motion that the reason why this particular idea may have taken off is because such developmental choices, um, these these switches, offer a shortcut solution to the problem of material adversity, which is uh, that avoids the problem of tackling the socio-economic inequality that fundamentally underlies health disparities. So in this view, bad things don't just have to have bad consequences, they happen because there are switches that get pulled one way or the other, during development. And if you can identify which those switches are, then probably you can intervene at the pharmacological level to improve health without having to face any, any, any um, challenge, anything really <coughs> fundamental. And you can see how this particular viewpoint might be popular within cultures that don't want to upset the neoliberal apple cart. So that's my argument um, for why, from a critical medical anthropological perspective, we might well be extra wary of concepts such as maternalisation and developmental choices. The former is likely to foster denial of structural factors uh, in creating health inequalities, and the latter, denial of the, their fundamental materiality. Because I, I am, I am a, I'm a materialist, I think that, um, that, the, that there is a fundamental role for material factors in creating um, um, health disparities. So this way of thinking um, denies the complexity inherent in biological systems like those that influence human health and well-being, but sit well within a neoliberal regime of truth which prefers a bias in discourse away from the collective and the complex towards the individual and the simplistic, and the idea that material factors limit um, human potential. So now back to science. I, want, I now want to consider carefully the evidence for these two concepts of Dohad and Par as they're currently interpreted, um, with the caveat that you yourself should be wary that I am now telling a particular story and constructing a particular narrative. Since Par is built on the foundations of Dohad, I'm going to go backwards, beginning with Par, before moving on to the foundations that is, that is, on which it's based in looking at Dohad.
So to remind you again, the PAR hypothesis proposes that human bodies function well when the environment in which their mothers are pregnant is broadly similar to the environment that they themselves experience as adults much later. <coughs> However, they function poorly, um, <coughs> the implication being that ill health is going to be the consequence. They function poorly when there's a mismatch between this early environment and late environment. So work that I've done, um, work that I've done um, using church records from pre-industrial Finland has shown, um, has emphasised really that whether or not individuals experience a match or a mismatch is not actually uh, very important. Uh, when we're considering evolutionary, evolutionary relevant outcomes like uh, survival and reproduction in um, pre-industrial contexts. What matters is generally whether environmental conditions are good or not. And the, one, the main thing I've been looking at has been crop yields as, as a measure of the, the availability of food in these pre-industrial environments. So there isn't very good evidence of, that the experience of a mismatch has consequences for how well uh, humans function, or um, there's also some work um, looking uh, across, across animal studies as well uh, that has shown that generally um, animal studies don't also find uh, that matches and mismatches are important either. Experiencing a poor start in life is harmful, and experiencing a poor later life is harmful, as one might expect from an application of fundamental ecological <coughs> theory to do with how available availability resources and how animals are evolved to use those resources, and also indeed from, from common sense. But there isn't very good evidence that the combination of the early environment and the late environment is something that matters. So moving from Par onto Dohad, um, it is clear from what I've just said that the conditions experienced by the fetus while it's in the womb do have consequences for later in life. Indeed, it's, it is actually something that we should expect from fundamental ecological theory. So it's rather like the foundations for a house. If you don't have enough good quality material in the foundations and you don't put the, you don't put the, the very basics in, in, in place, the end product is likely to be, to be compromised. However, the fact that the environment of the, environment of the womb is fundamentally important <coughs> shouldn't obscure the fact that maternal behaviour during pregnancy, or immediately before it, um, isn't the only factor, or even uh, the most important factor, contributing to the environment that the womb, womb provides. And I'm going to revisit those three different lines of evidence um, that I mentioned earlier in order to make this point. So I'd like to revisit these um, birth weight studies, um, animal model studies, and, and the famine studies. Animal model studies are very useful in that they can tell you about the specific biomedical pathways, what evolutionary biologists call mechanisms, um, involved in DOHAD-type effects. However, there is a, a very fundamental weakness of these, um, and that's that the animals that are typically used, rats or sometimes mice, have very different reproductive ecology um, to, to, to humans. This is a point that uh, Jonathan Wells, who's going to be coming to do a talk in the seminar in the series later in term, John, Jonathan Wells has written a lot about this, and he's emphasised that um, you, can make it, you can make a distinction, it's more of a, it's more of a scale rather than a, rather than a category, but you can make a distinction in animals between income breeders and capital breeders. And rats and mice are income breeders, so 
um, a female rat passes on her food that she, that she that she a pregnant female rat will pass on her food the nutrition that she receives directly onto her offspring um, while while they're developing. Humans don't do this. Humans have energetic reserves and other other reserves which can buffer the um, the offspring from short-term variation in the in, in the environment. So what we reveal about dohad effects in rats and mice may not be as ecologically relevant to humans as as it, as it might first seem. So that's that's a really I think that's a really important point to bear in mind. So although the rats and mice do show that these, these effects happen and that they, they can show potential mechanisms, we have, to, we have to bear in mind that there are some important, important differences. On to famine studies. <coughs> famine studies are, are useful in that they provide fairly good evidence of causation in humans. So unlike the birth wave studies, what you've got here is you've got an external shock that comes in and affects the development of, of, of a fetus. And you can see there's causation there because you, you can compare those that were conceived or, or in, in utero during the period of famine, and you can compare them with those born or conceived before or after the famine. And it gives you a fairly, although you don't, um, well, it gives you a fairly good idea of, of, uh, of, of fairly good evidence of causation. Although it is actually difficult to work out to what extent that's to do with nutrition and what extent it might be due to other, fa- other factors like, like stress. Um, so from the Dutch famine, we know that famine in pregnancy is associated with an increased risk of type 2 diabetes in offspring and some other outcomes too. But how relevant is such acute food shortage um, to the conditions that experienced in contemporary industrialised societies and give rise to the variation in birth weight that we see in, you know, in, in contemporary Britain? We might conclude that such extreme cases certainly demonstrate proof of concept Yes, food shortage uh, or, or stress can affect offspring development under the very worst conditions, but the underlying processes involved might not necessarily have much to do uh, in common with the relationship between birth weight and these outcomes that we see across the normal range of variation in populations like ours, in which the availability of calories is most def- definitely not an important determinant of birth weight variation. Coming back to birth weight studies directly, um, there have been, um, particularly in West Africa and some other, and also in, in Southern Asia, there have been a number of trials where um, there have been attempts to increase um, fetal growth, increase birth weight by giving nutritional supplements to um, to pregnant women, and these have had uh, they've had some effect, but they've had they had relatively modest effect. That it seems to be that when you give a female, when you give pregnant women nutritional supplements. It doesn't have a very profound effect on the birth weight of offspring, and this is under. These are often in conditions that they're, they're, they're targeted at populations that are under nutritional stress. And interestingly, I might add that it's not always clear that generally having a high birth weight baby is necessarily um, a good thing, or has um, has good implications for the offspring's health later on. Um, although generally, that's um, how it's often. That's the shorthand. That's the, the general rule that people use. So they're, they're also. I mentioned before that type two diabetes and coronary heart disease have shown a positive, a positive relationship between birth, sorry, a negative relationship between birth weight and, and disease risk. <coughs> meaning that like the higher the birth weight, the lower the risk of disease. But when you look at um, type uh, obesity and type one diabetes, 
um, there's meta-analyses and systematic reviews have actually shown that the relationship is opposite to that. Um, so the relationship between gross fetal growth as measured by accrued index such as birth weight and later health appears to be quite complex overall. So what the, this sort of um, critical uh, um, dissection of these studies is, is because um, I want to call into question the assumption that maternal nutrition around the time of pregnancy is, is an important component of the environment of the womb. Uh, the environment of the womb that the babies experience. So I want to pause to consider that the environment, <coughs> this environment of the womb, is shaped by family and structural factors and developmental factors as well, which are far beyond a mother's control, and they exert themselves long before she's even capable of conceiving, let alone uh, becoming becoming pregnant. So it's shaped by the environment in which her body and brain have been developing through adolescence, childhood, infancy, and even her own prenatal environment. So by the time a woman becomes pregnant, and this is before we even talk about how those processes are linked to the social, um, you know, her place in, in the social world. So but by the time a woman becomes pregnant, um, the environment of, of the womb has really, has really already been being created to a large to a large extent, and this is why I think that there's a case to be made that though had research should be properly situated within the broader study of the social determinants of health, which have a deep reach back in, in the history of families, and ultimately that's what might be uh, driving these these persistent patterns, like these ones that were noticed by David Barker and colleagues. I'm not sure some of you. Some of you may or may not be familiar with the literature I'm talking about, and you might be thinking at this point that birth weight studies uh, typically do try to control for social class, and you might take from that the fact that, the, that there are strong, there are there are still residual relationships between birth weight and disease outcomes, and the fact that you have those after controlling for social class should mean that um, we've got rid of this uh, social confounding. Um, I think there's an argument to be made that that's not necessarily the case, but I acknowledge that that's um, what. Um, many people might might think, and I'm happy to discuss it afterwards. <coughs> but I'm, oh, I'm a bit ahead of myself, but um, I'm going to wrap up today um, by revisiting the evolutionary story. So if you were to agree with me that the past story as currently told is probably not an accurate um, evolutionary story, how then do we explain what happens in a developing body in evolutionary terms? Okay. So I want to draw attention to something which is actually taken for granted in um, a lot of evolutionary accounts of understanding human biology or biology of anything. Um, but it's actually quite a, um, it's quite a fundamental <coughs> thing about understanding adaptation and selection. So for the most part, accounts of selection and adaptation take a very, uh, a very dichotomous view. So they consider the interplay between an organism and its environment. So the environment shapes the genome, the, the genes of the species to enable the functions of the organism to fit within it. So um, organisms are shaped, organisms are selected on the basis of um, how well they function within a particular, particular environment. However, there are other ways to approach adaptation 
And an alternative perspective focuses less on function as a product of, of the fit between the organism and the environment there. You see you have a, sorry, yeah, just, just to make that clear, the reason why I've got that shape cut out there is you could have different sorts of shapes. So if you imagine you had a, a square organism or a circular organism, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't fit within that particular environment. Or if the environment, or if the organism was triangular and the, organ, and, and the environment was a different shape, it also wouldn't fit. This is a sort of a common way of illustrating, illustrating adaptive fit. But instead of emphasising the fit between the organism and environment, you can focus more on the fit, more, sorry, sorry, focusing less on function as the product of the fit between the organism and environment, we can focus more on function as a product of the fit between the organism's constituent parts, its cohesiveness or its, or its, its coherence. Um, so one, one evolutionary biologist that you might not hear very much about because he's sort of um, not very... He's famous for having a big, um, very long-standing... Um, um, he's, he's often put up as being um, on opposite sides of a debate to Richard Dawkins and um, to Stephen Jay Gould. He died in 2000. And they had very different approaches to understanding evolutionary biology. But they're both right about different things. But Dawkins is far, you know, has become much more famous, particularly in Britain, anyway. As, and, you know, and, and he's out, sort of outlived Gould, and he's sort of stayed longer to, to make his case about various things. But Stephen Jay Gould um, wrote a very interesting paper with Richard Lewontin in 1979 called "The Spandrels of San Marco and the Panglossian Paradigm," um, and they. I'm, I'm going to, it's often used to talk about um, macroevolutionary processes um, and, and understanding the changes in species over time, but I'm going to use a quote from theirs in, uh, to sort of make a slightly different point to what, um, to what this paper is normally used for. Um, here it is. An organism is atomized into traits. So this is um, describing the first. This is how we. Sorry, this is how we. Um, they're describing the process of explaining adaptations of how evolution, evolution biologists explain adaptations, and they're actually criticising the process. So, an organism is atomized into traits, and these traits are explained as structures optimally designed by natural selection for their functions. What is a trait? Some evolutionists may regard this as a trivial or merely a semantic problem. It is not. Organisms are integrated entities, not collections of discrete objects. Evolutionists have often been led astray by inappropriate atomization. So they're talking here about this is the old sort of um, this is the critique of reductionism, which is something which is often levelled by critics of science against science. But here it's being used within by scientists of other scientists to say that you can actually you can reduce things too much, and you, when you reduce <coughs> things too much, you don't see the, 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 important, the important context. So they're saying that. Rather than focusing on each individual function of a particular system or a particular trait that you see in an organism, it's useful to consider how everything fits, fits together as a whole. So, um, talking about the Dohad, um, um, in the context of explaining Dohad effects, remember that PAR was concerned with matching between the body and the environment. And this alternative perspective that I'm outlining involves developing organisms matching their constituent parts 
to one another and creating a cohesive overall, um, overall body. So one way this could work is that given an adverse early environment, an adverse maternal environment, the body may be expected, the body may develop in such a way as to make the best of a bad job. So give an example of this. Let's consider an individual whose skeletal growth has been stunted by poor nutrition during early life, uh, leading to a small, a small body size. Let's say we observe that this individual's metabolic, metabolic physiology is different to larger individuals. The Barr hypothesis would argue that the individual's metabolism enables the individual to be adapted to poor nutrition in later life. The alternative I'm, I'm suggesting, and which I go into more detail in, in, the, in the chapter itself, is that um, we should consider more thoroughly that uh, changes to the individual's metabolism may be part of this organism developing an internally cohesive um, phenotype. This alternative way of approaching the phenomena that are explained by the PAR hypothesis um, accommodates the material and structural origins of poor health as well as the processes of selection and adaptation and, and constraints on these. So to conclude, um, my remit for this book chapter was to write about the implications for uh, public health policy and clinical practice of an evolutionary interpretation of Dohad effects. Now my answer is that I don't, I'm pretty sure, and I do say this explicitly in the chapter, that we don't actually know yet what those implications might be. However, my hunch is at the moment that Dohad um, Dohad effects should be more firmly embedded within the broader area of socio-economic determinants of health and that we need to consider the structural um, causes of this. Um, and that means really that the solution to these problems is perhaps a bit more political and a bit more intractable and challenging rather than biomedical or clinical. And if I were to leave you with one message about the implications of evolutionary medicine for policy and practice, it would be this. Um, beware of simple stories with convenient, and convenient endings because they might, uh, they might be too good to be true. And that's it for me. Thank you. Thank you.